Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. When should I quit? This is the question for everybody. Do you quit when uh, the going gets tough? Do you quit when you're no good? Or how do you know when you're no good? Uh, Do you quit when it's frustrating or too frustrating? This is a big question that I'm constantly grappling with because whenever you try to get good at something, most of the time you're going to be bad because that's the nature of getting good. Like you're always trying to get to the next level, whether it's a business, we don't want to improve revenues, whether it's a, a sport, I want to beat people who are were originally better than me, whether it's an artistic endeavor, like I've been painting for years and nobody likes my paintings or it's a podcast, like nobody's listening or they're listening, but I'm not growing anymore. I used to grow exponentially. Now, nothing. When do you quit? Well, I had the pleasure today of talking once again with Angela Duckworth, author of Grit, which is all about when you combine passion with perseverance, you get grit, and that is a key ingredient for success. But when does grit, when do you have to just sort of turn around on grit? When does grit run out? Or when does grit actually suggest you should quit? Well, we talk about grit. We talk about effort. We talk about what if you have multiple passions. We talk about many things. We start off talking about quitting, plus maybe some of Angela's paths not taken for various reasons uh, related to grit. So here we go. Angela, I wanted to ask about there's grit and perseverance and pursuing your passions on the path to success, which leads to happiness and all these good things. But when do you know when to quit something? When should you not persevere? I think my last year of piano was around sixth grade. I had this teacher, Mrs. Durst, who would, you know, show up and like every week I I would sight read my lessons for Mrs. Durst. So even after playing for, I don't know how many years, by the time I got to sixth grade, I was terrible and I quit. And that was a very good decision because the world does not need another mediocre piano player from New Jersey. And I put Mrs. Durst out of a lot of suffering, I think, when I quit. So that's quitting for the right reason, I think, which is I didn't want to do it anymore. And it was a very consistent decision. So I I wasn't flip-flopping at all. And, you know, the day I quit, it was just like 
joy. It's like I could hear the angels singing in heaven. Everyone was happy. I think the wrong kind of quitting is when you're quitting out of a kind of myopic, like a need to relieve immediate pain. So like you want to go out for track, you do go out for track, and then you lose your first race and it's humiliating. And you say, I quit, right? Or I remember taking my daughters to ballet when they were really little and, you know, they'd be fine going on like a, like a rainy day, but they didn't want to go on a sunny day because like on a sunny day, they wanted to like go out to the playground and play instead. And I think quitting because like, oh, today I'd rather go to the playground. That's not a reflective decision. So I guess the moral of the story is I think quitting is very often the right thing to do, but I do think we very, we very often quit for the wrong reasons, which is to relieve immediate pain. Like let's say you're passionate about tennis and you love it so much. And then you enter in a tournament, as you suggest, you win against the beginners and you feel like I've got talent at this. I'm going to keep going. And then in the next big tournament you play in, you, you lose and you're like, oh, this is, I'm the worst. This is horrible. And you're suggesting that is not a good reason to quit. Well, it's, if it's not a reflective decision, right? So, so one of my favorite thinkers is this philosopher named Harry Frankfurt. And he's, I think, most famous for writing this very short um, little book, like Slimmer Than Your Pinky, called On Bullshit. Um, oh, I but, remember that book. Right? I mean, yeah, yeah. he's, he's kind of, he was like one of the few philosophers who like made it into the public awareness. Um, but he wrote another uh, even more, I think, important essay, and it was called On the Freedom of the Will. And I think in this essay, you have the answer to your question. So Frankfurt said, you know, we have lots of wants, you know, like I want to eat a bowl of ice cream. I want to itch this mosquito bite. Like, I, you know, I want to talk to James, whatever it is that is on our long list of wants. They are what we desire. But we also as human beings, and I think he would argue uniquely as human beings, like pigeons can't do this, dogs can't do this, and maybe even primates other than human beings can't do this. Like we have second order desires, like that which we want to want. So you want to scratch your mosquito bite, but you kind of wish you didn't want to scratch a mosquito bite because you know, you know, this is like not helpful and might scar or whatever. So, So I think for somebody who's about to quit something, of course you want to quit it on the day that you say out loud, like I quit, right? Do you want to want to quit it? And I do think mm, that um, Frankfurt was right because like that is the will. That is um, what it means to be a human being who's able to make choices, not only to do what we want, because any animal does what they want, but to have second order desires. And and I think, you know, much of life is trying to align our first order desires with our second order desires. So we're not fighting ourselves all the time. We're not like, oh God, I guess I'll have the salad, but I don't really want to have the salad, but I want to want to have the salad, but I guess I would. I mean, the, uh, like a life where what you want is the same as what you want to want, to me is like really the ultimate in well-being. So, you know, one thing you said about the piano, though, you gave you gave really two reasons why you quit. One, the second reason was you weren't enjoying it. You felt like when you decided to quit, you felt like the heavens opened up, the angels were singing, and that seemed like a good reason. But the other reason you gave was the world doesn't need another mediocre pianist. And that I question because not everyone has to be the the best in the world at something to enjoy a passion and to to want to continue to be good at it and and do it. And so on. And that goes for not just skills, but like entrepreneurship, like the world doesn't need another pizza restaurant, but 
you know, many people enjoy making pizza and want to make a living making pizza. Yeah, well, that'll probably be true. You're right. That's a very astute observation. In my story, there are probably two motivations. One is that I didn't enjoy it. And the other was that I wasn't, you know, like Juilliard level. Like I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't getting any feedback that I was like, wow, I'm really great at it. And I think you're saying that, yeah, the first reason makes a lot of sense. You know, you don't do it, don't do it. But like, why quit things just because you're not going to be, you know, Lang Lang or something. So I think in that second motivation, I'm betraying something which I now know to be true of myself, which is that I'm very ambitious. And I don't say that proudly. I say that almost shamefully. I mean, not not like I think it's a terrible thing to be ambitious, but uh, it, it's just me. Like, I don't like to do anything, James, unless I can do it really well. But it's not a rule that I would make for everyone. I think it's just like a preference that I have. But no, I don't like to do things that I kind of like, yeah, you know, she's okay. But like, I'd rather just like not do it. I feel like I'm the same way. And the reason I asked that question, the reason I, I noticed that is because I have the same tendency in myself and I often question whether this is a good thing because it's so easy to get disappointed in yourself if you want to be the best in the world at something. And when you're on that learning curve where you're everything's you're learning really quickly, you're at the beginning of the learning curve, it feels so good because you're learning new things every day. But yeah. when it starts to plateau or even sometimes when things get difficult, you know, you you go down, you go up, it starts to be a little bit more volatile, you're you're learning and your growth that's the time when it's very difficult to persevere. Uh, and it seems like you have to have more intrinsic reasons for wanting to do, like take a podcast, for instance. Okay. I love doing a podcast. I love talking to people like you and learning things. That could be reason of itself to do a podcast. But you know, sometimes there are some months you look at the numbers and they're going up a lot and some months are just sort of flat. And let's say if two months in a row are kind of flat, the number of downloads you get, you feel like, oh, well, what's happening? Am I mm. not as good anymore? Am I not getting better? Am I, what's the point if I'm not growing or if what I'm doing is not getting better? And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Like is it can, is sometimes a good enough reason that the growth is over. So you're not getting that huge dopamine satisfaction of, of you know, climbing a steep learning curve. Well, do you feel like you get better every, you know, I don't know, but this is too high in order, but like, do you, do you get better every podcast? I mean, do you like, do you, every episode, do you, are you constantly, and this is different from the numbers, right? Like, are you getting better? Do you right, think? Well, 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 that's a good question. So regardless of the answer, but you also mentioned the word feedback, like when the, when you're getting, when you're not getting feedback that what you're doing is the, where you want to be, like you mentioned about piano, why continue if you're not getting that feedback of of that you're going to be a Juilliard level uh, player? Uh, how important is feedback in the decision to to quit or not? Well, you know, I'll say what what I think is true, even if it like isn't what I wish it were. Which is, I think, what's true about pretty much all of us is that we just love positive feedback. I mean, we just love the idea that you know, things are going well and that things are going to go even better in the future. I mean, Adam Smith said that it is human nature to seek praise and to be praised and to be praiseworthy and to avoid blame and to being blameworthy, as Adam Smith put it, right? So, so you know, I don't know anybody who doesn't respond to encouragement. I think what I was asking you is, they're your podcast numbers. It's like writing a book, 
right? I don't know that anybody can guarantee that they're going to write a bestseller, but you can actually have some sense that like you have written an excellent book. And maybe if you write more than one book, not something I intend to do, but like most authors, like they write books, not book singular. I guess my question is, you know, is your second book for you? Maybe not the numbers, maybe not the sales, but but for you, do you feel like the second book was a progression? You know, because I think that's actually what I, I wasn't, I, for me, by the way, quitting piano was mostly because I didn't like it. I just, I am not that musical. I don't even listen to music. I'm like, you know, not interested in music. But I do think the quality that I see in the people that I study who are gritty and who are high achievers is that whether there's an external barometer or not, they are always seeking to improve. And they don't really like doing things unless they're improving. And in addition to that, they really do want to be world-class. Like they just, they just really don't want to have like a balanced life with like, you know, four things that they're sort of good at, but you know, there are tons of people who are better at them at all four. Yeah. So it's, it's like two components. One is, do you feel like you're improving? And the other is, is the feedback from the world agreeing with you? And, and, and sometimes like, like with writing, so writing's, let's say the activity that I've pursued for the longest amount of time. And sometimes you can measure it by, well, how many people read it? How many people commented? How many people quote unquote liked something? But often the articles I write where I feel the best about them are the ones where it didn't really go neither here nor there in terms of feedback or likes or whatever, but I knew it was good. And that's when I feel the best. Second best is when the world responds appropriately. And if, if the world's not responding and I don't really feel good about it, like the quality of the writing, then I start to think about what about, what about both? What, what about when you think like I hit it, it was awesome. And the world is like, yay, James go. That's yeah. That's the best. That's the best. Yeah. Right. And, and but the same, there are these two different metrics, right? And they're not always lined up. Right. And, and like the same goes for like a performance. Like let's say doing comedy, sometimes the crowd will laugh at everything, but I'll get off the stage thinking, ah, you know, I was just rehashing material. I was just doing easy tricks to get them to laugh. It wasn't really that good. And other times they'll just stare at you and you feel horrible, but you also feel good about how you're doing it. It just happened to be, you were trying to serve sushi to an audience that wanted barbecue. It just didn't, wasn't a right fit. <laughs> and so, so, uh, but, but like, I'll, I'll tell you like when, when Steven Dubner and I were doing uh, this podcast together, uh, we kind of quit at the point when we just felt we weren't doing anything new. Like mm. the, the numbers were not, the numbers were good, but they were not growing that much. And we didn't feel like we enjoyed mm. it as much anymore. And so mm. that, that I thought about that a lot because that seemed like a good time. Why did you just try to make it better? I guess we either didn't have the interest or the time. You know, I guess that's part of it too is how much did we really start planning like, hey, something has stalled in either the quality or the marketing or whatever. What can we do? And we just didn't feel like having those discussions. So I guess there's this third quality, which is you know, what's your, cost. yeah. And what's your internal motivation to what's your internal motivation to pay a higher cost versus other activities that you're doing? Cause we're all involved in, in, we all have a choice to pursue many different things. And so the reason I'm asking all this to you is where's the role of grit in this? Because at some point grit should also tell you, give you the right signals. You grit until you quit. Yeah. I mean, look, I think that the misunderstanding 
which is understandable about grit is that like you persist at everything at all costs, right? But sometimes to be gritty about your top level goal, right? Like the thing that you're ultimately trying to accomplish requires, of course, quitting, right? So I will tell you that I have had graduate students who didn't work out, right? What am I going to do? Stalk them and like, you know, hunt them down, try to get them to like come back to my lab and, you know, like keep working with no, like for a variety of reasons, like it didn't work out. I quit, they quit, we quit each other, right? Um, I think my nonprofit character lab, there was an aspect of it that I really wanted to do, which is like help children thrive using psychological science. And there's another aspect of which, which I was not very good at and I really didn't enjoy. By the way, those things are usually correlated, right? Like I'm not very good at it and I don't love it. And that was managing people. I, I actually had a second order desire to manage people. Like I wanted to want to manage people. Like I wanted to want to sit down with someone and review the last month and, and, and you know, with, in a very empathic way, um, in a very wise way, like, you know, lay out a road plan for what they could do next to improve. I wanted to want to do that, but I could never get myself to actually want to do that. So I, in a way, quit managing well, I did. I quit managing people, but I didn't quit the whole organization, right? So now my job is to do things like this, right? Which is have conversations, you know, to write, to talk. So I think there's a lot of quitting in grit. But I think the 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 real difference between, you know, quitting for the right reasons and quitting for the wrong ones is that, you know, when I said, you know, I don't really like managing people. I'm not very good at it. I'd like to do less of that and more science and more communicating. It was a reflective choice. You know, I understood my wants. I understood my want to wants. You know, I figured out like, you know, what I wanted to do and then I did it. That's very different from the kind of impulsive desire to relieve pain, you know, like, like this is terrible. This is terrible. I quit. Like that's, that's very different. I think if we can make a distinction between, you know, quitting on a good day as it were and quitting on a bad day, right? Quitting on a good day, usually quitting for the right reasons. So, uh, but you mentioned the words want to want, you know, so this is something you did want to get better at and, and enjoy. Isn't that like an indicator that maybe it's worth applying a little bit more, you know, thinking into, well, should I do it? To getting my wants in order. Yeah. Right. Kind of like, I want to want to have a salad, but I want a cheeseburger. So should I try to, should I try to get my salad want to want to beat the cheeseburger one? Right. Isn't isn't that a, a grit thing to do is to, to pursue the want to want? Um, it depends on your top level goal, right? So, so here's where opportunity cost comes in, right? I was like, well, and and I think honestly, if I had not seen any alternative, right? I was like, look, you're gonna have to just learn how to. There are many things. That, everybody has a job that um, that comes like it's like a relationship, right? It comes with all its parts, and there are some that you can't eject, right? And if it were the kind of thing where it's like, you know what, you want this nonprofit to survive, like you literally have to manage. There's no other way. Then James, I would have done it, and I would have done it, and I would have like done what I always do, which is like work really hard. But I found this just way easier alternative. So there's a guy. His name is Sean. Sean loves managing people. He loves seeing people develop. He loves sitting down like literally every month. Can you imagine? I can't. Like, like so. You know, what are the high points? Or low? Like, where do you see your developmental? I'm like, God, oh my God, I want to like chew my left arm off. So it was just easier to get somebody who was interested in and good at managing people to do that. So if you can outsource something, I think you should when you don't want to do it or delegate it. There are things you can't, right? So when you're married to someone, you can say like, wow, I love everything about you, but I don't like this part. You can't like kind of outsource being married to that part of that person. Or there might be just like, 
otherwise like, you know, like essential elements of your work. Yeah. I mean, don't you think that most writers would say that there are aspects of writing that they just, it's like the, it's, it's like the lowest lows, right? Like the, the most torturous, you know, but if, if you can't outsource it, then, then you do have to do it. I just think in this case, I, I was able to juggle things so that I could race my strengths and not have to train my weaknesses. Yeah. Like, well, and you know, you mentioned writing, like ev everything about writing, 90% of the things about writing are very unpleasant. You have to just yeah. sit, sit so for far. hours at a time, which is not a natural thing to do. You have to type these tiny letters, like, <laughs> you know, so much that, I mean, our hands are not built for it. Everybody gets carpal tunnel syndrome who writes multiple books or articles or essays and you, you don't get to socialize and it, it takes hundreds of hours or thousands of hours to write a book. Uh, and then you spend all this time on a book. What's the odds that out of the 2 million books published each year, you're going to be one of the hundred bestsellers. Like they're infinitesimally small. So it's a very unpleasant activity and yet people do it for many reasons. And you can't outsource most of those things, right? Like some of them you can, but maybe most of them you can't. And what you can't, you know, eject or delegate or outsource if you really, because that's why I say like, it depends on what you want, right? If, if what you really want to do is, you know, just it makes this part a necessity then. And I, I think it also changes what it feels like to do things where you're like, you know what, there's really no choice. I think we feel most tortured when we have some, intuition, some second sense that like, you know, somebody else could be doing this. It's not like uniquely that I have to do this. And so how much, uh, like when you, when you, in terms of when things have a cost and you mentioned opportunity costs, so you're investing time or money, usually significant time, you're, you're, you're investing effort. This is what you mean by opportunity costs. And whenever you invest something, you also have to take into account risk and have a plan B if things don't work out. So for instance, if you start a major activity, you're going to start a new lab or a major project with a bunch of research students, and it may or may not work. You're, the results you want may prove to be insignificant or not what you were expecting or whatever. How, how much is having a plan B part of constructing a goal towards getting better at something, learning something or whatever? There is debate, both in the scientific literature and also just in the world at large, about whether it's a good thing or a bad thing to have a plan B, right? So you will find arguments and evidence on both sides. Uh, you know, evidence for having a plan B, like a backup plan, you know, like flexibility, creativity, like there's this whole idea in, um, in goal research of um, equifinality, which is this fancy word for like, there's it's more than one way to word. skin a cat. I know it's a cool word, equifinality. Uh, and I'm thinking of the work of this like, really great psychologist. He's so great. I, I'm actually a little intimidated to reach out to him, but I, I made it a New Year's resolution to send him an email. Um, Ari Kruglansky, and he studies goals. And, and, and one of the things that is true about goals is that, you know, there are different ways to achieve a goal usually or often, or you can think of them, right? And that's equifinality. And, you know, when you have that as a reality, like it, it could just be that like you're, you're going to not do one path because there's like another path, which is better or easier. And then there are other goals where like, there's just only one way, right? Like, I mean, say, say you're Usain Bolt, right? And you have scoliosis because that is true of Usain Bolt, right? The fastest human being who has ever lived had like an orthopedic issue, which is like pretty serious. And I have scoliosis. So I will tell you like, 
there's all kinds of things that happen with like having an asymmetric spine that you would imagine would be kind of like a deal breaker for somebody who's trying to be the fastest human being who ever lived. And it did create like additional problems for him, which he then had to compensate for. But, you know, Usain Bolt cannot outsource the kind of like abdominal work and the strength training that he needed to do to compensate for scoliosis. He just had to do it. And so I think if we understand what we're going for, in some cases, we'll see like these multiple paths open up. We're like, wait, I could hire somebody to do that. Holy smokes, there's a there's a bot that does that. Like I can hire, you know, two people to do that. But you can't hire someone to do your abs workout if you're Usain Bolt. So like it, it depends on what you want. And then some reflection about like are there other ways that I could be doing this? But I, I think that's why grit isn't just like, oh, persist at all costs right? Like, oh, never quit. Like that would be the butter knife version of grit. But really, you know, we should use it as a scalpel. So I guess, you know, despite him having scoliosis, he must have had, I don't really know too much about his story. I didn't know, for instance, he had scoliosis. So he must have had this like burning desire somehow to just run (laughs) and uh, over everything else. Like what what gave him his his grit in this case? You know, I haven't interviewed him actually, so I'm going to be modest. And you know, somebody on your side can fact check my like school. I, I'm I'm very interested in his. Well, I'm interested in anybody who's like him, right? Um, he did though, like lots of interviews where he talked about like another thing that he probably at some points liked more than running, and that was cricket. Like he really loved cricket. <laughs> I think he probably thought it was like a lot more fun. Uh, I mean, first of all, it's a game right? Like, I don't know if running the 100 meter is like fun in the same way that like playing cricket with your team, beating other teams and keeping it like, so um, I do think there was a point in time where he had two roads diverge in the wood, you know, do I take cricket as my path or do I take track? And you would have to ask Usain yourself. Um, and if I ever get to interview him, I will ask him. But I think it was because he looked down these paths as far as he could see. And I think he did see that uh, he could be the world's greatest track athlete, which is what he became. Um, or, uh, you know, he could be a very, very good cricket player, but maybe not the best, or maybe he would be among the best, but not like, so um so whether the scoliosis had anything to do with it, I'm guessing no. I think for many people, not everyone, right? Some people want to just do it purely on enjoyment. It's just like, well, I just think cricket's more fun. I'm just going to have a, a good, healthy career. And I, I know for me, it, it mattered a lot to me. But again, that's because I think I have a strong preference to be like really good at what I do. And I, I'm not saying that's an ethical choice. It's just like, it's just... It's like liking chocolate chip mint ice cream. I mean, I I just like I just do. So not only really good at what you do, but acknowledged by a hierarchy that you're really good at what you do. It seems like that's part of the decision making a little bit. So and it might have even been with Usain Bolt. Maybe. I don't know. I think that's more of a guy thing, honestly. I mean, look, I, I don't want to speak out of turn because I'm gonna like make broad sweeping statements about gender differences, but but what I'll tell you when I was growing up, like I of course like there's some you know, feedback we get from the world. And so like, you know, there, like there, there's, you know, you do care, even if your internal barometer is more important. But I will say that for me, like, it wasn't that I wanted to beat other people or that I wanted to have like a lot of external affirmation. I, I just wanted to know that I was like the best at what I did. And I know that sounds like idealistic or whatever, but, but I sometimes like, sometimes I think it's like a guy thing to be like, yeah, but you kind of, you need like this external acknowledgement. I don't know. I didn't, I don't, I don't, it didn't feel exactly that like that, but I did want to be excellent. 
and and how do you how do you measure excellence? Is it internal or against again against a hierarchy? Well, I think that any performer in any domain, and I mean like a performer, meaning like anybody who's performing their job, right? Like has to, you know, have two ears, like an ear to the outside world and ear to the inside world. So like, I'm not saying that I was like not caring about like external feedback that things were going really well, but it, it didn't feel to me like that was the only thing or the primary thing. Like I know when, so I'm not as prolific as you are as a writer, but I write every week, right? I write every week for Character Lab, right? So I send out this tip of the week every week. It's like 60 seconds of actionable advice for parents and and um, and anybody else who has a young person in their life. And um, when I write it, like, you know, there is an internal critic, right? And um, of course the critic could be wrong, but like there are things that I know are good. And there are things where I'm like, hmm, not as good. Um, and to me, like I'm looking for excellence according to my own internal critic and I'm looking for progression. Like if I'm just doing the same thing in two years, like time from now, then like I'm going to be very dissatisfied. Like what the hell am I doing? Like why is this not evolving? Right. And so, and this was like a, a, a point of Anders Ericsson who we discussed last time is that you have to have metrics for measuring that progression. And some fields that's difficult, for instance, you know, like managing people, there's some, often there's, uh, there's not an easy metric because it, a lot of it depends on the industry you're managing the people in the actual people you're managing as well as your own personal style. So, uh, or painting, you know, if you're a painter, you could feel good about what you're doing, but there's, that's still a difficult metric to determine if you're actually progressing if you're going to endeavor to succeed at something, how important is it that you very quickly define the metric for success? Well, I think for Anders, for Anders, it was important um, first and foremost because he he wouldn't study it if there weren't an objective or like defensible metric, right? So you know, chess was great for Anders because like you knew exactly how good somebody was and you knew who won the game. And sports was good for Anders, and um, uh, I think I think. That was in part because as a scientist who wanted to put world-class expertise under the microscope, you know, he only wanted to put things under the microscope where he thought he could see something, right? Um, I think he fully acknowledged that there would be, you know, fields of study that like, or, or domains of expertise where like it would be very hard to do that. And so as a scientist, he wanted to prioritize things that did have a clear metric. As an individual, because most people are not scientists who study expertise, most people are just humans who want to be experts at something. I think it's also important because without some external feedback, you know, I mean, look, we've all been to art galleries where you think to yourself, like, I could did do that. someone think that was a good idea? Like, <laughs> that's horrible. Like, it's just, you know, I'm thinking of a particular painting right now. But like, it's, it's, um, I think I think this is why you know most athletes that I know you know even though like ninety percent of their attention is like in their internal critic like them compared to themselves like all that good stuff right where they're just trying to be on a journey of improvement or, and 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 some part of their attention maybe ten percent like is actually going to the score is going to the rankings because without that discipline of kind of like anchoring yourself in somebody's you know, estimation other than just your own private estimation, I think we, we can sometimes go wildly off course, right? Like we think our writing is fantastic. We think our singing is fantastic. We think we're a wonderful manager. But if you never, you know, 
find out from other people, like, how's my singing? Like, how's my art? Like, do, do people under me actually thrive? Like, you know, you, you can go wildly wrong. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. 
hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use HIMS for now. Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at HIMSS.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? HIMSS.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs HIMS. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. HIMS.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See HIMS.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. You know, I'm not, I'm not sure if we've talked about this, but I feel like this is where the Dunning-Kruger bias actually plays a valuable role in grit. Like when you begin something and you're quickly moving up that learning curve and you're getting this huge dopamine hit from that, you feel like you're a genius, even though you're just a beginner. And so that's this bias that you think you're better than you are when you're, you know, a, a little knowledge is a, a dangerous thing is the, is the cliche, but that's actually pretty valuable on the flip side, towards being gritty. It keeps you going despite the fact that you might suck and not realize it. You know, the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is um, named after the two psychologists who discovered that... um, you know, people who are underperforming tend to overrate themselves, right? So it's often that they're beginners, like, or not real beginners. Like people at the very, 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 very beginning of things often have, you know, very pessimistic or cautious estimations of like how well they will do or, you know, like how hard something's going to be. But then once they get started, they're like, oh, right, because they don't know what they don't know, right? And so, yeah, they can be wildly overconfident about how they are currently performing or how they will end up performing in the in the overall rankings of things. So um, it's usually the more seasoned players who have like a more sober and um, accurate estimation of, of how things stand. So there is this kind of like a little bit of knowledge can be a curse thing. I think the part of this research or this like you know, insight into human nature that could be practically useful for people who want to be gritty in the sense of, you know, devoting themselves to something that takes years and years to um, make progress on and, and to, you know, to like just keep at it, right, assiduously trying to improve, is that um, I do think we, we, we need encouragement, right? So, so if it's not the thrilling, like, 
oh my gosh, you know, I went from skiing a blue to a black diamond. Okay, now I can, you know, you don't expect that every day. But I do think the part of this research that we can take home as a, a practical insight is that human beings need encouragement. How am I going to get encouragement, right? And 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 it, you have to learn to get that hit of like, wow, I see some progress in, in very micro doses, right? So, so if you, even if you just make a tiny little advance, I mean, honestly, I think that if people could, um, could set for themselves the goal of like making some progress, like some non-zero progress on literally any aspect of their performance, but to do that every day, like that is a, a pretty sound recipe for becoming great at things. Like, you know, you don't have to worry so much about like, did I get better at the right thing? Or like, maybe I could have improved it. Like, maybe I could have gotten, you know, 2x better instead of like 1.5x better. To, but if, if you really literally improve on something every day, you know, in 10 years, you're going to be great. Like I'm a teacher, right? I'm a professor. You know, I could work on lots of things. Should I work on my like one-on-one student relationship? Should I work on my curriculum? Should I work on my assessments? Should I work on my syllabus? Should I do a better job lecturing? Should I not, you know, like assign so many readings? I mean, what am I going to improve on? You know what, James? It doesn't matter. As long as I'm improving on something every day without a break, in 10 years, I will be a much better teacher than I was today. And I see very few people who have that kind of, you know, disciplined routine where they are quite literally improving on something every single day. Yeah, I think the discipline routine part is important because take a game like like chess, which you mentioned that, you know, was a, a very which convenient. you play, right? Don't I you play, play, or is it backgammon? Or you no, play no, uh, no, chess is... Chess is my original love. Oh, okay, and, got it. Uh, and Ander, and I was in some of the early '90s Anders experiments on chess. What? Yeah. Um, Wait, hold on. My mind is being blown. What? I didn't know that. Yeah, it was. It was. Um, you know, some people, scientists he was working with, like uh, De Groot and uh, Ferdinand yeah. Gobey. Wait, you were in those studies? I didn't know. I was in the one where. Um, it's amateur master, grandmaster, memorizing positions for five seconds, 30 seconds, a minute. Wait, and which then, level were you? I'm master. So, Holy schmoly. So, I'm so impressed, James. So, so it, was, it was interesting because, you, you know, the, he, the, the experiment sort of proved that there's no prodigious memory advantage that chess players have. It's, it's more like they, the master and the grandmaster memorizes these language of chunks uh, and grandmaster is very highly massive. specific. Yeah, to the chess domain. specific skill doesn't mean that you're going to be like good at memorizing recipes or something. Right. Or if they showed you random a random chess position that didn't come from a legal game, then yeah. the grandmaster was no better than the amateur. Yeah. And so that was the the end result of the experiment, which is valuable towards learning because it means how do you st- structure your learning? So you're learning chunks instead of you know you, it changes the way you learn. But um, you know, I, I see a lot of people who just play mindlessly every day, just play. And they're not getting better at something, And they never right? get they're better. They're just like, just playing more chess. It's like playing more tennis. So the invention of computers to study the games afterwards is, is very important. That's how you do this, let's say, 1% improvement a day, which leads to, you know, compounded is whatever this means, 3,700% a year, you like you say, you get to be great, much greater if you just improve a tiny bit each day. And most people sort of forget that because it's it's just tiny improvements. So people, it's an easy thing to forget. You you, you could say, oh, I'll do that tomorrow. Today, I'm just going to play. 
Yeah, yeah. And it's always harder to do the 1%, right? Which is um, it's just uh, interviewing Carrie Walsh Jennings. You know, she talked about like becoming a better and better volleyball player, you know, looking to go to her probably last Olympics, right? But, um, you know, her career has been record setting and she, it's like she lives by the rule of 1%, right? It's, she's not trying to get like 10% better. It's just like, but can I do things 1%, but like one thing even, like can I do this thing 1% better than I did the day before? And I know that makes it seem small, which, by the way, is a good way to frame it, right? Not, you're not trying to do something necessarily heroic every day. You're trying to do something consistent every mm. day. But that 1% is always going to be harder than 0%, right? So so how many people are Kerry Walsh Jennings? Like, like not, not that many. And I think, in a way, understanding that she's trying to get 1% better should make it more democratic, right? Should make it more accessible, for the rest of us. So yeah, I, I think that um, what really happens is that what, um, or what often happens is that there's like a short burst of intensity where people try to get 25% better or something. And then, and then they just stop. I, I had a postdoc once who was um, named Pete Mindel. So he's now a professor at West Point, but he, you know, was um, uh, in my lab after getting his PhD. Um, and he had uh, been an undergraduate track star at Stanford. So we were doing all these research studies on effort and, you know, developing a frustration task to assess, you know, tolerance for frustration. So I just said to him, it was like one late night, we were like working on this paper. And I was like, don't you think that people like don't try hard enough? And he was like, you know what? I think people try too hard. Hmm. Like, what do you mean, Pete? And he said, like, when you think about runners, right? When people start out and they're like, I'm going to join track or I'm going to start, my, they, they go all out and then they, and they try too hard, as it were, um, and then it's like exhausting. And then they just like never run again, right? Or they never run hard again. But but really, the secret is to try consistently and to set a pace for your training and your improvement, which is sustainable. Yeah, and it's very relaxing to think of improvement in those terms. It's because like if you trust the process, however you measure one percent, because in some fields that's difficult. Like how do you get one percent better at painting every day? But like if you trust the process, you're going to get better. If you truly improve 1% a day, which is doable in almost every endeavor, uh, uh, you're going to get better, whether you're disappointed in yourself yeah, now or not. Don't obsess about the 1%. How about this? Like, let's just make it zero or one, off or on, right? Mm -hmm. Do I think, you know, when I when I do an honest accounting of my day, when I go to bed, you know, did I, did I you know, try to, like, you can even set the bar like this. Did I try to do one specific thing better, how did I do? Honestly, if you go to bed every night and say, you know what, every day uh, when I put myself to, to bed, I can say that I, I had identified consciously one thing that I was working on during that day um, at some point for any amount of time and that I was at least trying to get better. You know, I, I, I think that's a near guarantee of somebody who's going to be making progress. Um, and I think it's much easier to just like go to bed without doing any of that. And, and I'll certainly to wake up the next morning and not to set that intention. So was there ever a time where like all research aside, was there ever a time you could look back on and there was an area you were passionate about? There was all the ingredients for you to be, you know, to have grit and pursue it and persevere and, and so on where you just didn't and you, you, you were disappointed in yourself or something. And it was, it was just, you just didn't follow through. Uh, yeah, I I would say my senior year in college, um, uh, what I am 
sort of disappointed in myself, but not, not entirely disappointed, which is um, that I was a neurobiology major. I was doing research at the medical school that was kind of down the road and across the bridge. And so, you know, a couple times a week, I would like, you know, get myself there and I would be working on, it was on Alzheimer's disease. So it was like, you know, looking at these very thin slices of human hippocampus that we were staining for this protein called spectrin. And I was trying to figure out whether this protein had anything to do with the onset and the development of Alzheimer's. And, you know, I was just a college student, so it wasn't like I was about to win the Nobel Prize. But um, there were these findings about, like, you know, this protein and its isoforms and the dendrites versus the axon. And I mean, I remember it. it was like, you know, like as if it were yesterday, right? And and um, and I think they were certainly like important. And by the way, bottom line was like not really, not so much. Spectrin was not the you know the core reason why people develop uh, Alzheimer's, but still an interesting and important scientific finding. Now I had a choice. I could have written that up and tried to you know um, pursue that and get like you know highest honors in my major and graduate summa and also like go down this path of becoming an md phd who would hopefully unlock the mysteries of neuropathology and I didn't. And the reason I didn't was that I was spending most of my time my senior year um, raising money for a nonprofit summer school for kids. And so I had this tension between, you know, what I was trying to do in my extracurriculars and what I was doing in my academics. And and there was uh, a road not taken for me. Um, and then, you know, the road was really not taken because basically the farther I went down the path of education, the, the more implausible it was that I would like go back to what my dad really wanted me to do, which is to become like a medical school professor. And so do you, do you ever feel disappointment that you didn't continue that research? Um, the reason why I said like I'm sort of disappointed is that I realized that I probably could have, you know, done more, at least in my senior year, right? Like, you know, I didn't graduate summa cum laude. I didn't get highs. Like, I, um, I, I would say that the reason why it's like really tepid disappointment is that um, I love what I do now. And I think I have the wisdom of a 50-year-old to say, you know, like you can't do everything in life. You know, like there was also like a, a little part of me that wanted to be a food writer, right? And when you ask me what I read when I go to bed at night, I don't read psychology journals like the minute I'm about to fall. Like the thing that's on my nightstand is food writing. Like I just read Ruth Reichel's like, I think read like her seventh book. I've read like everything Samin Nosrat's written. Like I've, I, I read the food section of all these newspapers. I don't even go out to eat or like make these. I just, I really love food writing. Now that's a road not taken also, but I'm 50 now. I'm not 30 or 20. Like I now recognize that like that's life. Life is like mostly roads not taken. And uh, I'm happy to be on the road that I did take. But you know, what would it look like? I'm, this, I'm really fascinated by this. Like people... Like you say, you're 50. A lot of people after a certain age doing something for a certain number of years, they reach this plateau in what they're doing and they have a choice. They can switch to another hierarchy and, and experience that fast learning curve again. It doesn't matter if you're 20, 30, 50, 70. What would it look like if right now you decided, you know what? I've done what I can in academia. I love it, but I also really, I don't want to let this life go away without really pursuing this other love I have, food writing or, or cooking or whatever it is. Like, what would that look like if you were to, to pursue that now? 
So, okay, I want to I want to answer your question, James, but I also want to give you the alternative to that, right? Because I'm not choosing that, um, but but I know what you mean. I mean, if you look at, for example, like Academy Award winning actors and actresses, they often, you know, in their fourth decade of being like great at what they do, and they're also they actually do something different. They 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 could, you know, like start over and become a restaurateur or a painter, right? Um, but uh, I think, for example, Winston Churchill, like you know. Decide when he retired from civil service, basically painted, right? And I think so did George W. Yeah, Bush, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, right? I actually saw some of his paintings and kind of liked them. Anyway, so um, uh, so I think that's one choice. But the other choice that you often see, for example, Academy Award-winning performers um, in uh, film do is that they become directors or they become producers. And so that it's not exactly like starting completely over from scratch and a new professional together, but it's like an evolution. Um, and I would, I would argue that, um, for, for me, right. Like I, I, you know, why am I on a podcast with you and why do I do this podcast with Steven Dubner? And it's, 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 it's a way of like evolving as a psychological scientist who cares about communicating science. And so it's, it's like my goal hierarchy isn't completely swapped out for a new one, but more like with recognition of what my high level goal is, I can like kind of find, you know, a better path to it or additional path. So there's evolution, but there's also starting over entirely. If I were to start over entirely, I think there is a road not taken for me, which is like to have a bed and breakfast. Like when I was growing up, there was that miniseries Hotel with Connie Selica. And like, it was very 80s and it was- Yeah, I kind of uh, remember it. Do you remember it? Oh my gosh, I loved it. I remember the opening sequence. I remember the music. Um, I mean, you know, it was like a miniseries soap opera. So, so, so nothing remarkable there except for that when I watched it, I was like, I'm going to be a hotel manager. And I actually applied to hotel management school um, uh, at Cornell when I was, you know, um, a graduating high school senior and um, didn't take that path. But I could start over. I could be like, well, I've done a lot in psychology. Now I'm going to open a bed and breakfast. Like now I'm going to make huevos rancheros, <laughs> right? Like I could. Um, and I think for my 30s and maybe, you know, some part of my 40s, probably not, it just, it was a little bit of a daydream where I was like, you know, that might be fun. But um, where I stand now, like I, I would much rather evolve um, in my current goal hierarchy and try some, you know, other equifinality type paths um, to get to my higher level goal of using psychological science to help kids thrive than, uh, you know, experience the thrill of beginning a new learning curve. It's, it's, it's interesting because I often do the, the road not taken, which yeah, is- Yeah, I mean, would you say stand-up comedy for you was like starting over? Yeah, because let's say I started that five or six years ago. So I was in my late 40s and you, nobody starts in their- 40s. Like that's something you start when, when you're and 14. It really was, I think it is actually a totally different thing, right? Than like what you, then, I mean, you could make like, you could draw a line between that and writing and stuff, but like, would you say it's pretty much a different thing? It's totally a different thing. And I thought okay. it would be similar, um, but there was nothing similar at all. So then you unpack your motivation and are you glad you did it? And, and, and why did you do that and not, not choose to just like evolve? I thought it would be an evolution. So I thought I, I rationalized and thought this is going to be an evolution. This will make me better in some ways at what I'm already doing. And maybe it did a little because the the process of getting good at something is like a meta skill. And so yeah. I got good at that meta skill of getting, which yeah, I'm able to apply to learning. other things. Yeah. But 
and and also learning at a at a higher age, which deals with there's some there's a lot of psychological issues with that as well. Like yeah. you're you're an outsider, you're always an outsider. You're never going to be an insider. Everyone's always going to mm. be skeptical. You're always so, going to speak with an accent. Yes, exactly. So there's no there's not really many good things about it other than there's not going to be a career for me in it. Um, or it's going to be very difficult to have a, a a career the way other people have. So why did you keep doing it? Why I, at, the, at that point in the narrative, I would have been like, oh, I'm done. I love it. And I still try to mm. rationalize and say it's helping me in other ways. But more recently, I've kind of thought, you know, it hasn't helped me as much as I thought. And if I had spent all that time, for instance, starting a business or doing something in finance, because I also have, have a career in that, then I would have had a, a lot more money, for instance. So what what is well, like what are you supposed to be famous for? So like you know I met you like as 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 like kind of more of a friend like I, and I remember I was like googling something and you came up as like a LinkedIn influencer and I was like wait do I even know who James is like what 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 is your main thing? I don't know if I have one. I've been and I've started businesses that I've sold successfully. I've been a successful investor. I've been written a bunch of best selling books. I've do this podcast. I do comedy. I do other things. Play so chess. are you? You're like a contradiction to my my thesis, which is that you have to really devote yourself to something and and not be a dilettante and not spread yourself too thin. But like, I think you might be contradicting then my my um, claim here. Maybe yes or maybe no, because I have thought this about myself too. Am I too much of a dilettante? So I never really get to be the best in the world at something, mm. even though that could be a desire of mine. Every time I'm interested in something, I only want to do it if I could be the best in the world, like what you were mm. saying about yourself earlier. But it's very hard to make that happen if you switch interests every t eight years, say. Yeah. And because, uh, uh, you know, it takes longer than that to be the best in the world. So the writing is the thing that I've done the longest, but being interested in other things helps writing because it, you can combine experiences. Right. Yeah. You can, it's like sort of like, it's like when journalists tell me, it's like if I ask them to answer the grit scale and it's like, you know, new interests, you know, like take me down new paths kind of thing. Like they're like, yeah, that's what it means to be a journalist. Like, you know, things have a beginning, middle and end and then you're on to the next project, but there's a through line. Okay. So this might be rationalization, but do you think there's a through line for for James, like, is there kind of like, look, if you really want to understand me, but like what all these things that superficially seem totally different, um, and in some ways are different, right? Like, but there's something that I have in common, like, you know, I love complex problem solving, or like, they're all about human nature, or they're all about like, the written words. I mean, maybe not, but like, is there, do you think there's a through line? Do you have I don't a center? Know. And I've, I've, I've thought about it a lot. I don't know. I think there's some aspect that's like games. So chess obviously is a game, but investing is a game. It's the, it's the same type of game as as chess or poker. It just happens to be in this uh, domain that pretends it's not a game. Uh, huh, you know, comedy is like a game in the sense that, you know, you have to come up with more interesting wordplay and ways of describing things than the other competitors around you. I don't know yeah. if I'm, I'm, maybe I'm pretending that's a game or not. I don't know. But also there's another line, which is uh, writing and comedy is also a form of performance. So it's, it's, mm. it's, you're entertaining people. You're educating people too, but you're entertaining them. And so there's some combination between games mm. and entertainment that is somehow- But that doesn't explain investing or um, Investing is like a game. 
And and uh, so oh, okay, right? Yeah. Games, uh, yeah, but you can't make everything exactly fit. Yeah, I can't like, make everything the intersection of those things, right? Yeah. yeah. And so maybe there's some intersection between games and and writing, but I and and perform and entertaining, but I don't I don't know it yet. So are you happy? How how happy are you on a scale from zero to ten? Where ten is like my brain is exploding with ecstatic joy, and zero is like I am the depths of depression. Well, let me ask you: How important is that? How important is the answer to that question? Yeah, because you can be passionate about something but be miserable most of the time. Like, so for instance- Well, you answer my question first and then I'll answer your question. I don't think, I think I'm, I'm a roughly happy person, but sometimes I'm, I'm not very happy at all because I'm not performing. You know, there, there might be times where I'm not performing to so the level I want. So let me phrase it this way. How overall satisfied are you with your life? I'm pretty your satisfied life. with my life. Let's say Give like, it a number. Uh, let's say like an eight or a nine. Jeez, that's pretty, that's a lot. Yeah. Eight or nine on a zero to 10 scale. But every now and then I think, well, what if I had just stuck with this thing I started when I was 21, whatever that was. Like, mm -hmm. what if I had just stuck to one thing? So maybe that's why you're not a 10. That's yeah, that's probably why I'm not a 10. But then again, you see many people who are unhappy who did stick to the one thing yeah. and then end up... That's why you're not a zero either. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, or even a seven, right? And no, I, that's a very interesting answer. But then sometimes I take a step back and say, well, by man on the street standards, I'm successful at many of these things I've tried. But by my standards... I'll look at someone, let's take chess. I'm a master, but there's hundreds of grandmasters out there. So they, I suck and they're great. <laughs> and right. uh, now compared to 99.9% .9 of chess players, I might be great, but to the ones I look to, I suck. <laughs> and, right. uh, uh, and so then I think I'm just mediocre at everything I do. <laughs> Even though, again, by man on the street standards, oh, I've written these books, I've done, I got a popular podcast, you know, all these things I'm successful at, I don't consider it success. And so on that level, I'm not so happy. Interesting. Okay, very meta. So, and I know we're coming to the end of our time. We all seem to run out of time, even though I feel like I've devoted more time to being on your podcast than any other podcast except for my podcast. And, and I appreciate it. I've learned quite, <laughs> no, I've learned quite a lot from talking to you. Yeah, so. Okay, but let me end with this, right? So just to bring it all back to Frankfurt, maybe there is, how am I doing, right? Like in terms of what I want, like how am I doing in terms of my ambitions? How am I so that's like a first level question. And then there's like, how am I doing with how I'm doing? Kind of like a second order question mm, of, yeah. of satisfaction. And, you know, I think that they both count. And, you know, really, if we can get to a point where there's some alignment there, like you feel pretty good about how you're doing, but that you feel pretty good about how you feel good about that. You know what I mean? Like at, at, that you don't have a lot of internal conflict. So for me, I would say, to answer the question just for myself, I am very often dissatisfied with the quality of my work, how the last lecture went, you know, the progress I'm making, you know, how I'm mentoring students. But I'm also at a meta level at the very same time pretty satisfied with being unsatisfied. So like I, I have a kind of second order like repose, even if at the first order level, there's all this distress about like pretty much everything in my life not being the way I want it to be. And so in this case, like I think that, you know, even more than alignment this is what matters is that like my second level happiness, like, yeah, I'm doing well with how I'm doing, even if I don't feel like I'm doing well enough. I'm feeling like a I don't know. I'll give it a a nine. I th I think that that second order thinking is is valuable, and also it's a way of broadening the field until it encompasses all the different activities you're doing. So if you can't be a bed and breakfast owner, 
you could <laughs> you could still be uh, uh, have a lot of knowledge about cooking and hospitality, and you could feel that okay, as long as I keep getting better at a more general, broader domain, and and it fits in studying like how does someone get better at cooking? Now you're getting back into grit, and it all kind of fits under a bigger umbrella. Yeah, I don't I don't spend a lot of time, you know, pining after my bed and breakfast, uh, you know, the the unrequited dreams of a bed and breakfast entrepreneur. But there's a, a certain grit factor in bed, being a better cook, for instance, that could be studied. Sure. Yeah, and I can study them, <laughs> which which is its own uh and for me better gratification. But I like the second order stuff and I know you have to go. So Angela Duckworth, thank you for part three of the grit concept <laughs> the trilogy, episode. Yes, the trilogy. The James and Angela trilogy. Yes. It's been very fun, um, which is probably why we keep talking, but thanks, James. Yeah, thank you. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.